Hello and welcome to this all-new episode of Poetry Spoken Here. I am producer and technical director Jack Rossiter-Munley. And very quickly before we get into the episode, I just wanted to mention as always that Poetry Spoken Here is produced by Cardboard Box Productions Incorporated, a small digital production company making podcasts about poetry, literature, and cultural history. You can find out more about Poetry Spoken Here and all of the other Cardboard Box Productions podcasts at cardboardboxproductionsinc.com. And, most excitingly, Cardboard Box Productions also has a newsletter called Unboxed that you can subscribe to, and that's a great place to get more information about the poets and writers featured on Poetry Spoken Here, and the people, poems, and subjects featured on all of the other Cardboard Box shows. So again, that's the newsletter Unboxed that you can subscribe to from CardboardBoxProductionsInc.com. On with the show! I'm Charlie Rossiter, and this is Poetry Spoken Here. Our feature today is Freesha McKee. She is a person who writes poetry, prose, and genres in between. She's the essay editor for South Florida Poetry Journal. She's published in some lovely places like Painted Bride Quarterly, in Calyx, and in the Ms. Magazine blog. Her chapbook, How Distant the City, is available from Headmistress Press. And now she is teaching poetry, hybrid forms, and micro-memoir classes. And uh, I think that's what's really interesting to me. Besides her poetry, I think you want to hear about her a varied interest. And she's talking to us from Macomb, Illinois, where she moved recently. You can contact her at freshamckee.com. That's just her name, dot com. That's easy to spell if you're looking at a screen. Okay, here we are, Freesha. I'm so glad we could do this. Hi, Charlie. I'm really happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, because as I said, you're doing a variety of interesting things with, a, to me, an interesting approach, a little bit different. And that's always something I like to let the world know about if we can. Tell me what uh, a little bit about what you mean by hybrid forms. Sure. So I think that hybrid forms are something that a lot of us who have writing in our lives are familiar with, are drawn to, but don't necessarily know it or don't necessarily call it that. So uh, so the way that I would define a hybrid form in writing is a piece of writing that doesn't neatly fit into any one genre. So it's not completely obviously a poem. It's not completely obviously a short story or a piece of memoir or you know sort of like borrows genre conventions from multiple places um, and I think that those you know one of the things I'm really interested in is that those juxtapositions I think can teach us a lot about not just oh this is interesting you know it, it, this is different but I think the hybrid forms teach us about the genres because we are doing that recognizing of like oh that's a poetic technique or that's a prose, you know, a fiction technique or whatever it is. Um, so even something like I was looking at um, Gary Snyder's book. What was the book that won the Pulitzer that Gary Snyder wrote? Um, Turtle Island, probably. Turtle Island yeah. has an essay at the end. It's a hybrid book, oh, you know, true. he has all of those poems and then he has an essay at the end. That's just like one of like many, many examples, right? Where hybrid forms have sort of always been around or like 
Basho's Narrow Road to the Interior, very old book, is another example of that, um, you know, the, using the high bun form, which is uh, using blocks of prose and having haiku uh, interspersed between them. So um, where was I going with that? Yeah, they're all around us. And I think it's, I think it's interesting to sort of intentionally write hybrid forms. And I've also found in my teaching, especially during the pandemic, that there's some interesting writing invitations that I can help offer students. Maybe students who um, are intimidated by poetry and have just written prose or, or, you know, I feel like inside of every poet, there's an essayist, like a nascent essayist waiting to jump out. And so sometimes the hybrid force could kind of help, help bridge the way uh, into manifesting that. That's a good thought. Yeah, sure. Cause I mean, like, like here on, on the podcast, when I talk to poets, it's kind of easy because poets have a lot to say and a lot of ideas. And basically that's the essays. Right, exactly. Green let's say, you know. Right, right, right. So yeah, yeah. everything between the lines. The es yeah, the essays are there. Yeah. Well, like one about the thing you recently wrote about uh about the poet I and the particular kind of line that she has. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go ahead. No, tell us about it. So everyone else hasn't read it. <laughs> <laughs> so I have been writing these sort of regular blog posts for the Plowshares blog. And the most recent piece that I worked on was about I's first book, Cruelty, which is public was first published 51 years ago. And if you're not familiar with her work, the thing to know is that she mostly worked in the dramatic monologue form. And so the speaker is a persona speaker. Um, usually in a very intense situation. And she's really dealing with some of the most dire situations imaginable. So somebody who's um, like experiencing sexual violence or somebody who's witnessed a murder or who is like committing child abuse, like very, just the most intense situations yeah. you can think about. And then the poem is from the voice of one of the people in that situation. So I have long been like interested in her work as a feminist and just as a reader. Um, and the themes sort of can be, uh, can overtake everything else. So my thought was like, well, what would happen if I, you know, the themes are always there, but what if I really look at her lineation in her poetry? Cause that's been a big interest of mine recently is, is like really developing a personal vocabulary for how to talk about the poetic line and all of the decisions that poets make around that. So what I realized from studying her book Cruelty is that she uses many, many lines where the line is a complete intact sentence. The, the line is just composed of a, of a complete sentence, nothing more, nothing less. So I decided I would coin a term for this, the resonant line, um, because I think that cool. that kind of double hitter of having the line break and the period at the same time is just throwing like a boulder down on the page and it matches her subject matter. So the magnitude of her subject matter so well. And so looking at that, it was just, I, it was like revelatory because of, of course, I'm compelled by her subject matter, but it was like, wow, like now I can see it's not just telling this story, but it's telling this story with like 
some additional, very intentional craft tools. Wow, I was so impressed because I've had that book from maybe when it was published and it's it's so good. I've read it, I'm sure, many times and I never noticed what you did when you got in there and got analytic about the line, you know? Yeah, really it makes all the sense in the world. It was like wham, right in your face. Right, right. Oh, and tremendous. There's so, yeah, and there's so little in Jammin. She has a couple of poems where all of the, almost all of the line breaks are in Jammed, but the lines pretty much match the like, curvatures of the sentence wow. sentences. Another great book for listeners, and I know many folks are familiar with this already, is James Longenbach has a book, The Art of the Poetic Line. And so if you are a person who really wants to do a deep dive into lineation, that's that's a good book to, to start with. Great. That's super. Okay, folks, take a tip from Freesia. That's good. <laughs> who, who looks deeply into these things? Way more than I ever have. That's wonderful. Why don't we hear one of your poems? Okay. Um, okay, so I'll, I'll read a poem. I spent um, eight months of the pandemic in Fort Wayne, Indiana, which was pretty different from any place I'd lived before. And this is one of the poems um, about that experience. It's called Fetal Funeral. Our neighbor on the corner a few blocks over has planted pray to end abortion signs in her front and backyards. I've never seen her, but armed with duct tape, I fantasize about defacement or replacement. I want the final word. I want the signs to say, pray for more vasectomies or make an erasure poem employing letters selectively, rat arbor or two ebor. I have Sharpies. I fantasize about leaving my blue coat at home so she'd never know it was me if she saw me. I'd wear a mask so she could not see my face. In any case, none of our neighbors here know who we are. We moved mid-pandemic, and I've never stepped foot in any real Hoosier's house except for a stranger from Craigslist who texted us the code to unlock, enter, and carry out a dresser she was giving away for free. We could have stolen her dog. We could have stolen her wall art about the fighting Irish. She'd left the house to pick up her son from school, an emergency, so the house was quiet and we stayed quiet as if we were in church. After eight months in isolation, I'd already forgotten that every home smells different, signature of the people who live there. I wonder if that house on the corner smells like rose bouquets, memorials for the fetuses its inhabitants mourn publicly in perpetuity. I feel unable to let go of my indignation about living in Indiana home of fetal funerals and vigils for the unborn. And in my mind, this is also connected to Ryan White's bullies and the woman in the liquor store who laughed at me when I asked why she wasn't wearing a mask. If only I told the maskless woman she was ugly, pandemic or not, mask up. I seem unable to let go of my wish to harm. The woman pulled a polka dot mask out of her pocket to show me she remembered, but refused to put it on. We don't go to that liquor store anymore. 
Instead, the dog and I walk by the corner house where I begin my fantasies about tearing the yard sides down. At the base of a beautiful sycamore in the front, they've built a tiny fairy house. I laugh terribly when I think it's perfectly sized for fetal funerals, which have not been moved online, nor the vigils because they are performance. I feel forced to grieve my own losses privately. This has been my aching grievance. I'm glad that far away, the signs look small. The leafless sycamore is taller than every house. I love that poem. <laughs> Thanks. Has, has it been published anywhere yet? Uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's out there, but not yet. Okay, surely it will be. Wow. That is really, really something. Well, that's another something about your personal story. You got your degree a few years ago down in Florida. So I, of course, I met you back when we lived in the Midwest and met you in Milwaukee. But in the last just couple of years, you lived in Florida, Indiana, and now Illinois. Um, that poem aside, do you have anything to say about the the influence of the places it's sure. obvious in that poem, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, that's definitely an Indiana poem. <laughs> um, yeah, so I, when I, so I lived in Milwaukee, I left, as you said, for Miami, and I really found myself compelled by the landscape there and living in this subtropical place. I'd never lived in a place like that before. And so I, when I moved to the Midwest, I realized, oh, I really am like a very place-based poet. I never really thought about myself like that. But my classmates in Miami would say, oh, yeah, like it's another Milwaukee poem or another Milwaukee story. They just point that out. And it's like, oh, yeah, I guess I am writing a lot about my hometown. But then, of course, whenever you leave a place, you write about it. So that when I left Florida, I found myself continuing to write a lot about it. Um, and I think... Um, I what I really one of the things I gained from being in Indiana was that there's like many different Midwests and I realized I had even internalized this idea that the Midwest is a little monolithic and I was like oh Fort Wayne's really different from <laughs> Milwaukee um, and then now that I live in Macomb Illinois it is a whole a third Midwest that I'm experiencing so well, Macomb is a university town. If if people don't know that Western Illinois is there, which right. makes it different than most small towns. Yeah, it's definitely a college, a college town. Yeah. Hmm. All right. Just just curious. That crossed my mind. Realizing you had these these geographic transitions kind of close together. Yeah, and I think it's it's strange to. Any, you know, anybody who moved during the pandemic, it's like you move to a new place, but you're not going to poetry readings. You're not, you know, going out to eat. You're not doing all this stuff where you would usually kind of interact with people and get to know the place. So just a lot of walks outside, which was yeah. a great, great thing. Yeah, but <laughs> but different in terms of getting acclimated right. and getting up a social network or a poetic network. Right, right. Yeah. Well, let's do another poem. Okay. So I've been kind of related to what we were just talking about. I have been reading and thinking 
a lot about eco-poetry and place-based poetry and so uh, and description in poetry which of course we're always describing things in writing uh, but I thought okay what would happen if I really intentionally uh, make description my my sole like craft focus so this is a, a sonnet that came from that pollinator you watched the egg yolk, rich and gelatinous, oozing across the crevices of a buttered triangle of toast, and the bright star of the middle traffic light, liminal sun, when it was okay to stay or go. Inside, a stream of cornmeal fell into a clear mason jar, assuming the hue of its contents like an hourglass, a filling goldfish tank, finch song lilting your open window like a tiny trombone. Once you noticed that orange juice is usually yellow and that you are not the crayon that no one wants, you wondered what else would happen if you started paying true attention. The light changed and children on the school bus were literally singing the first lemon honey highlight of what streamed in after you woke up. Mm. Interestingly, I have a little note to myself from reading the poems you sent me ahead of time. Mm -hmm. And in this poem, and in uh, a poem called Water Study Number Two, in both poems you explicitly mention really seeing what's there. Yeah, yeah. I realize there's a lot of stuff that I don't see and a lot of stuff a lot of stuff that I don't hear and, and I have a terrible sense of smell. I, I, there's a lot that I can't smell and I'm, you know, like many of us, I'm in my own head a lot. And so doing all this walking during the pandemic, I was trying to think a lot about like, or, you know, or, or um, what would it be like to walk through the world as, as a musician or as a visual artist um, huh. instead of a poet? Cause I'm, I'm a lot of times I'm just, in my own head or I'm thinking spatially about relationships between things. And I also took a Zoom meditation class and I had meditated before in my life, um, but that, that was helpful in getting me to notice, you know, mm. the, the doorways of the senses and what's coming in. Yeah, it's definitely important and, and very interesting. If I go out in the woods, you know, I basically go out in the woods to be there. I don't go there to take hikes. I just go to be there. Right. And then start try to start listening to the the river running by over the rocks and whatever, you know, and it's right. It's just extremely interesting. Mm -hmm. I yeah. guess and it's kind of the I guess I guess the basis of everything. I mean, from that, from the starting with the description, then you get some kind of idea because otherwise you don't it's sort of a so what. You know, the sky was blue today. It was pretty, whatever it was. But yeah. and there's the bird. But then somehow a connection gets made, and all of a sudden, you're saying something. Right, right. And poetry is all about connection. All about, I think, all about connection. All about juxtaposition, and all about like relationship and placement. And so, yeah, I think that reflects how we're interacting. And then especially now with so many of us doing a lot of um, screen time and stuff like that. 
you know, yeah. all of the anxieties of our era with many different sources, yeah. that, that natural connection can be really important, I think. I'm with you. I actually had something else I wanted to ask you and I forgot. So you better read a poem. All right. <laughs> Maybe I'll think of it. So <laughs> True I'll <read> confession. <laughs> <laughs> so I started writing every day for a month a letter to a palm tree that was behind my apartment building in Florida. That was my writing practice in May of 2020. And I was very curious and intrigued by this um, palm tree's stationary life and realized I never thought about how trees stay in the same place their whole life. They cannot move and most plants don't move. And so I thought, okay, well, there's, there's a lot for me to learn there. Um, so the poem I'll read is from that project, those letters turned into high bun, which is a poetic form that is composed of a prose block with a haiku underneath. Um, and that form comes from this travel log tradition of Basho, who I, I think was the inventor of the form. Um, a lot of haibun have been written as travelogues. So that was another tension that I was playing with was what happens if you write a travelogue about not traveling or about interior traveling, right? So connecting back to like meditation, kind of yeah. like personal reflection and stuff like that. Um, and so I, yeah, so I'll read this poem. Cool. Water study two. Today, I walked farther from our home than I have gone in weeks. Perhaps humans have a troubled sense of home because we are mobile. The door of the pet store propped open, multiple grocery lots full of autos. Otherwise, I spent much of the day sitting behind a computer. On our kayak ride last night, we tallied every high branched iguana, then lost count. It wasn't until I walked for half an hour that I realized I had not actually seen anything, wasn't looking. Even as I write to you tonight, I take small breaths and lose count. This afternoon, Rachel sent us a video of dolphins joyful in a big canal in Miami. You know, there's an ocean near here, Florida, somewhere. When I watched Rachel's video, I shrieked in our living room how such a thing's alive in a world of so much fraud. Or maybe the lies are localized, humans basking in our own slop, paddling. I depart, so I feel I remain. Control group, we emerged, reacting to the red blaze atop the woodpecker. Traveling without traveling. I like that. Explain to me the last line. I don't don't think I quite get it. The control group thing. Con <laughs> I, mean, I know what a control group is, but I don't. Right. That's a good question. So I guess I was so so I was thinking a lot about these two words, practice and study. So I was thinking about writing practices, meditation practices, and also other practices that we take on. I was, that was one thing I was thinking about. I was thinking about studies. So like scientific studies and um, vaccine studies and stuff like that. And then I was thinking about 
academic study and what is like the difference between a practice and a study of something. And so I think that term control group came out of there. I was thinking about like myself as like a control group or like experiment or, or like a, the organism that I was studying is like, what were yeah. my human reactions? Hmm. Yes. Okay. Yeah. I saw, I said, well, that's interesting, but I didn't quite make the jump to the rest of the line of the line there. Right. There. I remember the other thing I wanted to ask you about, which uh, the way you got your degree only recently. And as I mentioned, when we were talking earlier and you just jump right into the poetry world doing workshops and writing for the blogs and all, I mean, publishing, of course, everyone tries to do that, but you did this whole array of things as an independent, uh, as an independent scholar, independent writer. And I'm curious if you, whatever you could say about that, because a lot of people are afraid to go into the arts, you know, mm -hmm. they don't know what they would do or how it would work out. And somehow you seem to have fearlessly just taken the plunge. Well, I think that there were some circumstances that kind of helped put me in that position that started out as frustrating circumstances and then ended up being positive. So one was moving across country in the first months of the pandemic. And I had an adjuncting job in Florida, a couple of adjuncting jobs in Florida that I could no longer do all of these colleges were cutting classes because enrollments were going down. And so I didn't have that kind of like adjunct university teaching opportunities. No. Um, and I was still doing like some part-time marketing and a lot of freelance copy editing and stuff like that. Um, but I was really interested in working with writers one-on-one -on -one and doing like writing coaching. So helping people work on their own book projects. Um, and I find that really satisfying because with a semester or a short-term class, when it's over, sometimes you never know what people do with that work. Yeah. But with the writing coaching, I really have been able to work with people month over month or even, you know, over a year and supporting them in a, in a single book project has been really gratifying for me. And then the other thing is that because everything was online, I was able to teach workshops anywhere. Um, so I was teaching workshops for organizations in Wisconsin and Massachusetts and North Carolina, like all over the place. Um, and so that was, that was great. And I mean, that was kind of my solution. Like if I can't teach university students, then I can teach community students. And, and I also started doing these micro memoir classes, just offering them just starting with people I knew uh, and then kind of moving outwards from there. Yeah, there you go. Well, it's great to see that it seems to be really working and, uh, you know, and, and expanding and the connections get made and the more people who work with you, the more people, they will have friends. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know. Right, right. And I think like for anybody who is feeling like, I want to take the plunge or I want to, you know, enter this kind of work. I think one method is to start with the writing communities you already have, or if you don't have a writing community to start building a writing community in terms of where you're located geographically or like an organization you're already connected with because people are hungry for more. I think almost everybody is hungry for more writing community. There is like a need there and there what I've realized over this year is like, there are, 
there are lots and lots of people who want to take classes and want to take workshops and want to be part of writing groups and, um, you know, just creating the space for that. Yeah. People want to do it. All right. Take note, folks, if you're out there <laughs> and you've been thinking about it, Risha says, take a chance. Right. <laughs> it could work. Yeah, right. Exactly. So the only thing I'll say about this is that that book project, there's 31 high bun. And so this is one of the other high bun. When we got out here on the dock the day after the rainbows, I laid on my back and looked at the late afternoon moon. I suppose I should have been afraid a coconut would fall. I practiced my moves if that were to happen, shielded my face. Across the canal, a black cat pattered through the trees free of any parasympathetic YouTube note-taking. It's not appropriate to ask outright about personal trauma. The meditation welcomes one breath in, then lets it go. And I bet it didn't take you long to realize we are letting go all the time. But it took me a long time to let go of the idea of stasis, a conception I held only because my privileges rolled out the illusion that I am not a part of other people doing things like growing corn and coconuts, pumping what used to be dinosaur guts from beneath the ocean. In the store, the only people who didn't wear masks today were men, yell at me for noticing, but I noticed. The teacher said during the meditation that if you're feeling an itch, you're not supposed to scratch it. Nothing conducts, it doesn't move. My mask on the ground is filled with ants. And even as the meditation teacher asks us to see self-criticism, I'm counting what I didn't do today. This includes the question, how are you? Are you little, but your spine, paw pads and glass, Ibis relying on black cat crossing interruption. A very nice thing that you do is you just slip in these little humorous things, which I yeah. appreciate. I mean, <laughs> back in the other in the in the other poem about going into a, an Indiana household, could have stolen the dog. What a great idea. I'm so glad you had that idea. It's, it's a plus for the poem. And then this one, of course, warding off the coconut. <laughs> I should be thinking, oh, yeah, I'll take care of that. I'll, I'll be ready to snap too. That's just <laughs> really lovely. Well, Fisha, this has been really, really good. I think uh, like all these nice things we talked about, and I learned some things. I got to hear your poetry. That's right there. That's worth it right there. And everybody else out there, you did too. So, <laughs> Frisha McKee, her, her website is frishamckee.com if you want to uh, talk to her about any of these things or learn more about her and her work. And there you go. Thanks for being here. Thanks so much, Charlie. All right. Be with us again next time for Poetry Spoken Here, where you can let poetry speak to you. You're listening to Poetry Spoken Here. I'm your host, Charlie Rossiter. And now I'd like to tell you about a book by a friend of mine out there in Wisconsin, DeWitt Clinton. A new book of his called By a Lake Near a Moon, Fishing with the Chinese Masters. 
And what DeWitt has done in this book is given himself a very interesting assignment. He has taken Kenneth Rex Ross's wonderful translations from the 1970s, a book called 100 Poems from the Chinese. And DeWitt has gone through the book and written adaptations slash improvisations off of those hundred poems in Rex Roth's book. That means that you've got poems in the style of the old Chinese poets, straightforward, clear uh, diction, uncomplicated, simple, yet frequently profound, reflecting the inner state of the poet, speaking from the heart as clearly as he possibly can. And I'm just going to read you a couple of DeWitt's adaptations. You can see what you think. The book is available from Is a Rose Press. Here you go. A common theme is uh, being out in nature in these poems. And DeWitt always in the titles of these poems tells you what he was doing that kind of led him to spin off of the particular old Chinese poem that he's spinning off of. Up early to see what's left of the moon, I'm bemused when opening to me Yao Chen's The Crescent Moon. The neighborhood dogs live mostly in the neighborhood homes, but we know the dog next door lives mostly outside, caged, with nothing to do. Even if the moon is blue, or new, or just rising, or almost waxing. All woofing day, woofing all woofing night, woofing. They also were, uh, you know, not afraid to be light and uh, introduce a little, I would call it humor. It's not exactly the kind that makes you laugh, but it's just a lighthearted way to present what's going on. That damn dog will not shut up. Now, as I mentioned, where, where DeWitt lives is in uh, Shorewood, just north of Milwaukee, right on Lake Michigan. And here you go. Awake before anyone walks along the lake shore, I rise and read Morning by Chu Shu Chen. Most of the time, I'm up before even the birds know what's up. I barely recognize who's who with the ribs so prominent below the sinking face. Water helps bring the body back to where it once was, before. I shave the head, face, then steam the old skin. I'm the first in our little kitchen, so I prepare food for loved ones. The intimate first-person approach is also a characteristic of many of the old Chinese poems. Also, a certain kind of solitary contemplation as in this poem, DeWitt says, alone in my study near the lake, I read Chu Shu Chen's Alone. On our street with so many houses, I miss the moon rising on our lake. By late evening, we're already nodding off with old TV friends, helping us through August. Every day, a new body is pulled floating down or up in one of our rivers, at sunset, coyotes hunt for grass hideouts. Our sky is filled with hungry dragonflies. It's only now that I wonder where all that I've done has gone. Tonight, we hold each other, so we will remember each other. 
a few selections from DeWitt Clinton's By a Lake Near a Moon, Fishing with the Chinese Masters, available from Is a Rose Press. I'm Charlie Rossiter. This has been Poetry Spoken Here. Be with us again next time to let poetry speak to you. You've been listening to Poetry Spoken Here. I'm Charlie Rossiter, inviting you to join us again next time to let poetry speak to you. Music for today's program was written and performed by Jack Rossiter Munley. And remember, Poetry Spoken Here is more than a podcast. You can like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash poetryspokenhere. Follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash poetryspokenhere. For more about today's show and other Poetry Spoken Here podcasts, as well as our blog, just visit our website, poetryspokenhere.com. If you'd like to submit suggestions of poets or topics for future podcasts, you can send to our email address, poetryspokenhere at gmail.com.